Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast about cinema and the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams. Released in 1990 with the assistance of American cinema giants like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Martin Scorsese, Kurosawa's episodic film is a series of vignettes depicting dreams the director himself claimed to have on numerous occasions. At times lyrical, metaphorical, and literal, the dreams keep one foot in reality, but employ brilliant color and even unexpected visual effects to create a deliberate yet transporting experience. Deeply personal and at times horrifying, Kurosawa's dreams are a meditation on life, ecological disaster, war, death, and above all, hope. Join Nate and me as we stay up late, foregoing our own dreams for those of Kurosawa. So Nate, I picked this this film, I guess for a couple reasons. I'm a huge Kurosawa fan, as you know, uh, but I have to confess that I've struggled with some of his later films. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of his earlier output, and I do like his later films quite a bit too, but his style, his uh, approach to filmmaking pivots in a huge way after Redbeard. And, and we did an episode on Redbeard, if people want to uh, go back and, and check that out. And, you know, this, this film really stands out to me as definitely a big departure for him in terms of not only his uh, filmmaking style, but his storytelling style uh, in general. But I, I, I do find that I don't love his later films uh, like I do his earlier films. Uh, but re- revisiting this this time I, was pretty eye-opening for me. I, I guess I feel like this is good timing to, to revisit this film in, in these fairly dark times. Uh, so I, I guess I'll leave just my first impressions there, and we'll, we'll expand upon them further here as we talk. So just first, uh, first thoughts about Kurosawa, uh, Dreams, and maybe the films uh, toward the end of his career. This is my second time seeing this movie. I saw it maybe a year or so ago for the very first time that I watched it again as you picked it for our discussion here tonight. And I didn't care for it too much the first time I saw it. I didn't dislike it. Uh, I like it a little more this second time, although I still don't think of it as an especially great film. Um, And I, I share your sentiment that Kurosawa's later work is not as interesting to me as his earlier work. Uh, he does become more meditative, and the pacing of his films is a lot less action-oriented than it was in his earlier work. I think of you know, maybe the biggest uh, obvious example would be to take Kagmusha versus Seven Samurai, yeah. and how these are two big, large, epic films, and both dealing, of course, with samurai warriors, but... The one is very much meditative and much more Eastern, you know, much more, I think, in root with his with his heritage as a Japanese filmmaker, whereas the other one's very much, I think, indebted to the West. Uh, Seven Samurai is very much ma- almost made for a Western audience, it feels, in many ways. And so I think that he does have a little bit more of a introspective and a, a just sort of languid 
storytelling pace in his later films. Not to say that they're bad, but I just find them less interesting, and they're not the ones I go to as much, other than Ron. I think Ron is a fantastic film, and that's one of his that I do like a lot, and that was the film he made right before this one, I believe. that Maybe, Matt, you know his filmography better than I do, but I think he made that, and this was his first film following on Ron, about five years' gap between the two of them. Yeah, that, that's right. He did Ron in 85. Um, and I agree. Ron, it's generally considered to be the strongest of his later films, and I, I think I, I would agree with that. It's um, a fantastic uh, epic, but it's it still shares many of the stylistic uh, choices that we see here, I think. Uh, you're, you're right to say that his style becomes more deliberate, more meditative, more Eastern. You know, Kurosawa is frequently thought of as, as a very Western Japanese director uh, stylistically. But, yeah, l- later years when he's, you know, becoming more elderly himself, he his filmmaking style almost uh, reflects the idea of getting old and, and, and not so much in a way that uh, shows a lack of skill or a lack of, of um, interest in, in creative storytelling, but his, the energy is just very, very different. Right. And it almost seems like Kurosawa is embracing that maturity and that change in his life. And he's no longer maybe afraid to um, embrace some more, Eastern sensibility to his filmmaking. But when I think of Kurosawa's later films, I always think of paintings. Uh, you, you know, Kurosawa was very much a painter, and he painted a lot of the imagery and the storyboards uh, for this film in particular. did a lot of artwork for Ron as well. And his use of color just always seems so painterly, and uh, his framing as well. You know, the, the camera is very much locked off. Uh, we're not really seeing those dynamic uh, tracking shots and uh, dynamic, you know, framing that we are really accustomed to with his earlier films, especially his samurai epics. But, but here, you know, he takes that kind of painterly style uh, to the next level, especially during the, the Van Gogh segment. So it's intriguing to to see this side of Kurosawa and to see how he's really unafraid to uh, confront his own mortality, his own uh, process of aging, but also his own um, convictions, his own beliefs. You know, this film. You know, watching it this time, uh, this film is strikingly earnest and one criticism you could probably level against it is how on the nose it is, I guess, in terms of a lot of its thematic material or a lot of the messaging. And Kurosawa just seems very unapologetic about that. It it can make the film seem very heavy-handed, but Kurosawa just doesn't seem to care. He's just kind of like, you know, these are my beliefs. This is These are topics and themes that are important to me, and I'm just going to kind of slap you in the face with it. And there's just an overwhelming honesty to this film and an earnestness that I, that I admire. And, and it, it may not be the most uh, elegant way to present this material. It may seem clunky or forced or heavy handed, but uh, there's really no cynicism here. And, and that's something I really appreciated watching it this time around. 
It's a good way of describing it, the lack of cynicism. I think that's very true. I would be one of those people that would criticize it for its overly overt. It's just it's a very overt messaging, especially in the final half hour uh, or so. Yeah, uh, it just gets so on the nose and it's very didactic that it does kind of it portrays. I think the premise of these dreams, right? Dreams aren't quite that on the nose. And I was you know, watching it again, thinking the first part of it really is very much. The whole film's pretty much across the board accomplishment in terms of its presentation. But the first part, not only are the colors amazing, the costume design amazing, the the pacing is amazing. It really does give the sense of a dream because the dreams, as you, as anybody who's had you know some experience with dreaming knows, they're kind of similar but kind of different. And these films, these vignettes, are kind of what you'd expect of a movie, but they're kind of different as well. They're they're kind of passive, but they're kind of active, and that's the way a dream is, right? And I think he captures that quality of dreaming quite well, uh, particularly in the earlier vignettes. I think the final vignettes get so, especially the last one with the, uh, the village, are just so on the nose and talking and talking and talking. Oh, hey, don't... I don't think dreams are always quite like that. But the earlier parts, I think, are mostly highly successful in terms of creating this sense of I'm actually watching somebody's dream uh, in the, in a film like this. Yeah, I would agree. I actually find the first dream to be the strongest one in the entire film, <laughs> which is probably not the greatest thing. Um, Certainly, it's. I think if you're looking at it from just the perspective of the accomplishment of cinematic technique it's probably is the greatest sequence uh because i mean there's just the costumes the the way he takes uh the the fairy tale nature of it all i mean it, it is really an incredible uh sequence just to watch yeah so the opening is it's uh called sunshine to the rain and it's important to point out that every one of these dreams really has a kurosawa surrogate right so uh it starts out with a, a child and uh, it's a sunny day, but uh, a rain rainstorm comes through, right? So the um, child's mother runs out with an umbrella and, and warns him, you know, warns the child he can't go out because weather like this is when foxes hold weddings and they don't like to be watched. But, of course, the kid has to go out and, and look, and, and he sees this... Uh, fox wedding take place and it's such a haunting uh sequence that that scene in the forest with the uh the foxes so the very theatrical kind of um procession with the uh, fantastic masks uh, almost like no theater masks but they're clearly foxes uh just a a really striking sequence the the lighting the uh, the use of smoke and fog and it's the the photography is just beautiful during that part and it again I, I just think it's the strongest uh, part of the film but the um, uh, the shocking thing about it is kind of how dark it turns right so his mother finds out that he's uh done this against her wishes and 
gives him basically a, a, a sword to commit suicide, which it's like, this is a little child. Not, not only that, she... Well, he, yeah, he's supposed to go and get forgiveness from the fox, who are, if they and they're supposedly are going to be unforgiving, so if he can't get them to forgive, he should kill himself. Exactly. And I just remember the first time I saw it, when she handed over this, you know, what looked like a stick, and I was like, oh, is that a sword? And sure enough, it is. I mean, it, it's pretty dark, and... and she not only tells him that, but shuts the door on him and sends him off. And then we go and see that really iconic image with the boy in the in the field with the flowers and the rainbow overhead, which is, of course, the uh, the poster art for the film. It, just a, a a really striking opening, and again, very painterly. The use of color is pretty outstanding. Um, and it's a good segue into the peach orchard sequence. So the uh, the child is now a bit older, and and we see really uh, another kind of almost dance troupe, right? So it's this doll festival that are surrogates for a peach orchard that has been cut down by this boy's family. And this is where the film starts to get. You know, it, it's still visually amazing, but you you do get the sense that Kurosawa was not afraid to really take his time, right? This is a pretty long kind of dance sequence that goes on and kind of goes on and on and on. And uh, especially into the Blizzard segment, there's quite a bit of time in this film of people either just dancing or walking or hiking, and it starts to feel like filler from time to time, even though I, I do think it... it serves the purpose of creating and building atmosphere, which is pretty effective at times. I think it has the benefit, I think it has the benefit of um, creating sort of a dreamlike state because you and the audience almost become hypnotized by it. Yeah, so Uh, it has a purpose. I was thinking about this, you know, the, yeah, the internet, you know, has all those different videos that people watch to try to to go to sleep at night. I was thinking, gosh, you could just probably take some of the clips from this film and use that for people to go to sleep to. Uh, particularly the scene in the blizzard, because it is so very much hypnotic. I mean, yeah. you, you do feel like, you know, just the rhythm of the sounds, the movement, everything just is kind of designed to lull you into sleep, which is really what that film or that, that sequence is about because it's these men who are, you know, basically going to die, right, from from the cold and from the blizzard. And it's kind of this slow winding down towards your death. Uh, and then eventually the one refuses, right? He refuses the woman that appears out of nowhere in order to uh, kind of lure him into death. He stops and doesn't go with her, and then they find their camp. And I think that that that's part of what is a really great success, especially in the earlier dreams, uh, the the two with the little boy, and then now the blizzard, where the Kurosawa, the character is never named Kurosawa in the film, but you know it's supposed to be him. Yeah. Uh, he's kind of an adolescent at this point, a young man, and I think that that rhythmic is what gives you the sense of okay, the dreams; these are dreams; these aren't just short films put together; these are actual dreams that we're watching here. Yeah, and, and the the visuals in that blizzard sequence are pretty uh, pretty neat too, uh, especially when the. Personally, I don't like them uh, because, and this is just the somebody who lives in a, a cold weather climate and has a lot of experience with snow. 
you can tell fake snow when you see it, and this is very fake snow. Yeah, but it's a dream, too. I, I mean, I, I'm okay with that theatricality. I, I like the kind of the undercranked photography at times. Uh, but it, it does look like a set, right, on the most part. Um, but I I think some of that artifice is fine, considering that it's supposed to be a dream. I, I do find... It's much more forgivable in this case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do find that there's likely quite a bit lost on an American audience here. Cause I, I think there's a fair amount of Japanese mythology, uh, interwoven with some of these sequences, especially the, well, with the blizzard, I think the, the woman that appears is, you know, from Japanese mythology. And there's a lot of imagery throughout of, of demons and other kind of spiritual sort of figures. Um, but Kurosawa was into mountain climbing, uh, during his life. So I, I think this kind of stems from that as well. Um, but a pretty strong opening. I mean, I, the, the blizzard part does get a little laborious in terms of just how long we're just seeing people wander around. But like you said, I think it creates that hypnotic effect and, and the sound design, uh, contributes to that too. But, uh, the, the next sequence is the, the tunnel sequence and, that um, depicts a, a Japanese soldier that's, I think, supposed to be returning home after the war, and he he sees the, the basically the ghost of one of his uh, soldiers that was under his command died in his arms, and then his entire platoon that was obliterated reappears out of this tunnel uh, with very very uh, striking. Uh, ghost-like makeup, right, that makes them look very gaunt and very, uh, very haunting. But the, the makeup is very, very, I, again, I think this is maybe, there's some element of Japanese mythology here that might be lost on us, because the, the makeup is very, very stylized, right? It doesn't seem to really, it's not really meant to horrify, it's, it's almost cartoonish in some ways, and Mm-hmm. It seems very intentional, but it still has, it still has the intended effect, I think. And their, their uniforms are tattered and dirty and bloody. And there's some pretty striking images in this sequence too. The, the sound design though, just the, those soldiers marching out of that tunnel is, is pretty powerful as well. But this is where the film, I think, starts to get pretty on the nose, you know, uh, the dialogue. Well, and the, there's a there's a rumor. I don't know if it's true, uh, but supposedly Ishiro Honda, uh, who uh, did the Godzilla original that we we did a podcast on a couple months ago, yeah. uh, was close friends with Kurosawa, and they worked together a lot in the uh, end of Kurosawa's career. Supposedly, he is an uncredited director on this film, and he directed that sequence, the tunnel as well as Mount Fuji in red. Supposedly he directed those um, those particular sequences. And I think that at least he's got to have some level of influence on that that's one sequence of the tunnel, especially because he was a war vet. Kurosawa was not, mm-hmm. and uh, had a lot of experience with, with just the death that came from World War II, and had always wanted to make a film that never really came to fruition about a 
like Japanese uh, war dead returning home as ghosts. And so I think that he probably was likely very much involved in that sequence, which I think is pretty visually impressive and haunting. But like you said, I think it does take on that more, that's where you see that more on the nose point start coming about. And I do wonder to what extent is this part of why Kurosawa, because he's not usually this blunt always, I think, on some of his themes. So is, is Honda having more of an influence on this film than maybe some people recognize or realize? Maybe, but I, that's one issue I have with Kurosawa's later output. I, I do think in general his themes just get very blunt, and it, there's really no subtlety to his later films. You know, I think of um, uh, Madadayo or uh, Rhapsody in August. Rhapsody in August is, is another film that's very anti-nuclear war, and that's pretty on the nose. And, and we see a lot of those similar themes here, and especially in a couple of segments later on, which we can get into. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I didn't realize that Honda was thought to have directed the tunnel. And I guess that makes sense. And Mont Fuji in red, I, I can definitely see Honda uh, contributing to that one. It's almost like a spiritual successor to Godzilla. I mean, you ha- even have the, the mother- even down to some bad special effects. Yeah, the bad. <laughs> yep, the uh, and the mother with the child, right? And we can maybe just skip over the crow's segment just for now and and talk about Mount, Mount Fuji in red. That that's a that's a pretty ugly looking sequence. <laughs> uh, there's some really weird. It's weird... not an impressive bit part of the film yeah, at all. I don't yeah. like that sequence at all. There's nothing about it I find worthwhile. It's pretty rough, and the uh, the visual effects almost seem like really uh, poorly done composites. I don't know if ILM was involved in that sequence at all, which they clearly were in the, the Crow sequence. But, yeah, that Mount Fuji and Red part is just not, not good. <laughs> and the, the they really employ a lot of extras, and it does seem like an outtake from a Godzilla movie in some ways. So... Uh, the use of color be, comes in there uh, quite a bit as well, and, and we, you know we see the different color gases signifying the different kinds of you know, different elements or different types of radiation that are threatening uh, threatening the people. But it's kind of a painful sequence, and that gets really, really, really on the nose. Like, okay, we're against nuclear power, and I, and now that sequence probably has more meaning for people ever since the uh the tsunami and uh fukushima in, in 2011 but it's the film would be better i think without it yeah i mean it's, it's one of those things where I, I i not that i think you need to you know always hide your idea your thought your opinion on something like nuclear power but it's one of those things where if you just kind of keep hitting me in the face with nuclear power bad or whatever your topic might be, you kind of just find it boring. I think that's the worst thing you could have a, a film like this is to have some sequence where you just become bored by it. Everything else is at least interesting. Even if you're kind of, eh, I'm not a hundred percent sold that you're kind of drawn into it. This one, it's part of it's because like you said, the filmmaking just looks bad. It does not look good. Yeah. Whereas all the other sequences, even if you're not, if they, the blizzard might be a little laborious it might seem very fake in terms of the snow, but at least it's very visually engaging and I'm, I'm drawn into it on some level. 
Whereas Mount Fuji in red, it just, everything about it just kind of looks, ugh. And so you just have this sense of, yeah, can we get this thing over with? I know what you have to say, and why we why do we stay here, you know? Yeah. Well, and it seems redundant to me, too, because the, the weeping demon sequence right after that is pretty much the same themes, right? It's, well, this is what happens with when, you know, after nuclear war it's it's that nuclear theme again and at least the that segment is a bit more you know visually engaging and and creative but it comes across thematically or or just go go ahead the weeping demon i think you know it has this idea of that it's 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 certainly not that it's by any means subtle I, i would never call it that but it does have more stuff to say versus it sounds like mount fuji and red is you're watching it just goes uh, nuclear reactor's bad, the volcano's going to blow up, and that's going to make things even worse, right? Um, the Weeping Demon kind of says, well, the the way in which we lived in life will follow us into our afterlife. It's got some ideas that are worth contemplating and considering, and the Mount Fuji of Red seems to be devoid of any actual idea of what it... I mean, it's, so you want to talk about nuclear power, fine, but it doesn't have much to say, and Weeping Demon seems to have something to say. Which is, I agree, you know, is why you could get rid of Mount Fuji in red and it'd be just fine. Yeah, yeah, the film would be stronger for it. And I think the ecological themes or messages would still come through in that, that Weeping Demon segment. Um, but it's... I, there's almost some science fiction-type imagery in the Weeping Demon with those giant dandelions and the giant plants. And the uh the part where all the the demons are like around the the ponds or the little pools there it kind of reminded me of 2001 i guess with the the monkeys or with the apes but it's uh visually more striking but still just not as elegant as the first part of the film in terms of how it's presenting its material it just starts to get a bit too deliberate, just too heavy-handed here. Uh, but let, let's get back to what may be, you know, a highlight for I think a lot of people, or maybe at least the most memorable part of the film. And I, I don't think it's the strongest dream sequence, but you know, it's not every day you get to watch Martin Scorsese play Vincent Van Gogh. So this is the the Crow sequence. So what were your thoughts on that? Right. Especially as a Scorsese fan. What, what do you think of his acting chops? Well, <laughs> he's, you know, it's funny because as a, uh, he, even though he's not an actor, he certainly has done a lot of films uh, where he's had small parts, uh, and you know, obviously he's had little cameos in his own movies. But he's also was in the movie Round Midnight, which came back in nineteen eighty six. It's a film about a jazz player, and uh, he has a, a a bit part in that, and so he he does seem to pop up. He was also in Robert Redford's quiz show uh, in a small role, too. Uh, he has kind of just a, an interesting screen presence, I think. Um, it's something to be said that he is at least, and maybe this is just obviously because I'm an English speaker and so is he, the the most seemingly memorable character in this whole film. Uh, not that I think this is the most memorable or successful dream sequence, but he does have a kind of nervous energy that you can see would be something I might associate with Van Gogh. Uh, and uh, I really love the way that that film, I think that segment of the film 
really kind of gets at Kurosawa's vision of how does art get created and being in nature and then creating something and just being caught up in it. And then all of a sudden the art emerges out of that engagement with creation. And I, I really do like that scene. Uh, that being said, it does get a little, a little too into its special effects at times. I think, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, who would have thought that George Lucas and ILM would get carried away with special effects. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, it does seem like it kind of loses itself in just kind of exploring the special effects and the idea of inserting somebody into the image. It's very successful. I mean, I, I have to say, I think it is visually very interesting what they do there, but it does also kind of seem to be more interested in just kind of presenting these fanciful images versus actually getting at the that, that little bit that starts with Van Gogh, uh, where you have Scorsese talking to the Kurosawa character, uh, and talking about the idea of creating, and then he just jumps into the p- paintings after that. Seems a little a little awkward and disjointed, but still um, a fascinating little bit of, in the film. Yeah, the the little bits where Kurosawa is walking through the paintings, I, they're neat, you know, especially that one uh, where he kind of steps up and out of the frame, kind of toward camera, and and there's that one uh, other shot too that zooms out it's but that part could be about half as long you know <laughs> after a while it's like okay we get it um they just wanted to use all the shots they paid for i guess but it's it's neat to see scorsese in that role i mean I, his his line delivery is very he comes across as like anxious to me and and not anxious insofar as well it's just normal Scorsese anxiousness. I think he was probably anxious to be acting in a Kurosawa film. You know, I would be. <laughs> so well, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It's a hero of his. That's all of a sudden his director. Yeah. 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 I mean, what, what a, what an honor and an opportunity that must've been for him. And I, that, I think that kind of comes through in his performance. It just seems a little bit, uh, a little bit uptight. Right. But good enough and the editing in that that part gets much more expressive especially when we're intercutting with that that locomotive as he's painting and we hear the the chopin uh kind of crescendoing during that part so it it's a much more subjective part of the film uh just in terms of its filmmaking approach which is interesting uh, not it's pretty rare to see kurosawa using editing that way uh, he, he's not, not one to, to be more expressionistic with his editing like that. Uh, even though he, I guess you start to see that a little bit, like in Redbeard, you start to see some cutaways here and there, but, uh, this was definitely more striking. And I, I do like how the sequence ends with kind of those animated crows. Uh, and then we cut to, uh, to the painting at the end there. And, and this is where it's very, very clear that, uh, the other character, the student, is is Kurosawa, right? I mean, he's dressed like Kurosawa. He's wearing wearing the the trademark hat that Kurosawa always wore when he was directing. So there's no no hiding it at this point that this is Kurosawa um, walking through uh, through these dreams. And yeah, so this is the the part that I, I, George Lucas and ILM had the most involvement in, and. 
uh, yeah, it, it definitely shows. It, it's a neat little sequence. It does. Uh, it definitely stands out among the the other vignettes. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking at the film as a whole, I, that that's sort of it's an interesting thing because it seems like the dreams are a little out of sequence. Yeah, it seems like crows should have come before the tunnel because you know the first films, or the first dreams are all kind of. I keep saying films because I think almost of these in some sense as like short films. They're assembled together, but you, know, you, for, you see those first sequences of the child, you know, that seems, you know, okay, he's coming of age. He goes out on the journey of you know, that, that sunshine through the rain sequence ends with him going out and you, you never really come home. It's a, kind of a nice little sense of, okay, once you have an experience of something out in the world, some kind of disturbing event, whatever it might be, you can never really go home again. Uh, you'll never be the child you once were, the person you once were. And then the peach orchard's kind of like a morning of of you know what had happened with the 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 desecration of the the, the trees. The orchard's been destroyed, and so mourning that and kind of you know coming to the fact that I have to uh, you know accept a sort of a, a responsibility, a moral responsibility. Uh, it seems like the blizzard would naturally follow up with just the idea of okay, I need to go out into the world. I need to conquer. Crows is about becoming an artist and seeing the world differently. And it felt like the tunnel, Mount Fuji and Red, Weeping Demon are all kind of like, now that the world is kind of just falling to hell, you know, they, they seem like they would fall together. Crows is just interesting place. I wonder if you have any thoughts, Matt, as to if the sequencing of how they've placed the different dreams you think has a meaning to it? Do you think maybe the fact that it doesn't make perfect sense is part of the reason for it? Obviously, dreams don't always make perfect sense. I'm just curious if you have any thought about the, the structure of how the dreams are ordered. Yeah, not not really, I guess. I mean, it seems very intentional early on, like you said. I mean, it seems like we're uh, tracing his childhood, right? We get to the certain point where he's a younger man um, as the mountain climber. Uh, and, and, yeah, the tunnel sequence does seem out of place, and it seems like crows should take place before that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It could be a juxtaposition of maybe color palettes that he was thinking about or um, uh, just emotion, right? So the tunnel sequence and the blizzard sequences are pretty, you know, pretty dire, you know, uh, in terms of tone. They're, they're haunting, they're more desperate, they're, they're more anguished, whereas Crows seems more hopeful, even though it's, it's about the, the struggle of being an artist and, and kind of the, the stresses and the, um, uh, the, the challenges of creation. Right. And so maybe he's going more for variety of emotion versus necessarily a, a through line in terms of, uh, following time. Uh, so hard to say, I, I, I guess I get the sense that I think, I think color was very important to him in this film, you know, just varying the different color palettes, but also the the emotional beats. So I, I guess that would be my best guess in terms of why they're ordered this way. Hmm. Um, the, well, I, I, we talked about the, I guess the last part briefly. So the village of the watermills and yeah, it's, it's kind of a weak ending to this film, right? It's, 
pretty much a conversation with Kurosawa and this older man. Uh, it's meant to be a coda, I think, of sorts, just a, a meditation on death and and what it means to, to live a full life. And the, the funeral procession that we're seeing uh, at the end is really more a party or parade or a celebration than it is a funeral. Uh, and Kurosawa, I think, is trying to be very hopeful here. I mean, it's a very brightly lit, colorful, sunlit sequence. It's outdoors. It's meant to be a big contrast to the Mount Fujin Red and Weeping Demon, which are, are pretty depressing uh, bits. But it's, again, it's very on the nose. It's, you know, very flat it's shots. Preachy. It feels like one of it's those preachy. old um, Star Trek episodes where they come in and just say, <laughs> in our future, we've learned peace, unlike you people of the 20th century. It kind of feels like that a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, it but, does. Um, I, it's weird. I, You know, Kurosawa is clearly a, a brilliant director. He's one of the greats, and mm-hmm. he's not... I mean, he's obviously an extremely intelligent person, right? <laughs> so it, it's interesting that he would find this kind of messaging satisfying, you know, as an artist or as a filmmaker. Like, like if I, I was making this, I, it would just, it would really bother me that it's like, it's so preachy and these shots are very flat and, and it's, we're just kind of cutting back and forth and it, it just doesn't seem to be exercising the tools of cinema to their fullest, but maybe that's just not what he was interested in at this point in his life. And, and it does hurt the film in terms of a, a, a work of cinema. And I think it, it hurts, you know, the audience's experience not to have uh, maybe that, level of ambition that we would expect to see either from Kurosawa or, or in a film that's just about dreams in general, right? I mean, this doesn't seem very dreamlike at the end. It seems more more like a sermon in many ways. Uh, but again, I, I do think that it, it, yeah. Kurosawa is just, he's doing what he wants to do here, and, and this is what he wants to present, and he doesn't really seem to care what the reception maybe does that make sense it's an interesting coda to the film i you know obviously the original intention for the ending's dream was something else it was the idea that the kurosawa character would wake up and hear what sounds like the drums of war and then going out realizing it's it's a declaration of world peace and all nuclear weapons are being sent to some other planet and never will return and you you hear about that ending and you think Oh gosh, that sounds way more on top and on the nose than anything that was here in the uh, Village of the Water Mills uh, sequence that we saw. Uh, I think it, there is something about it that I do like, even though I feel it is a little preachy and it's, it doesn't leave anything to the imagination. Is that it, there is kind of a neat way in which it parallels the opening dream. Uh, it kind of serves as a nice bookend where yeah. the you know procession you have there at the beginning of these. Fox-like, you know, characters. Uh, these people that are, are costumed to be like their foxes on their wedding procession is being mirrored by this uh, procession that we'll finally get to of the funeral, and the sense of you know coming full circle. I think is a big part of what what he gets at in this film and kind of a returning to our humanity. 
Uh, I, I do appreciate that element of it. It just get, takes a little while to get there. It feels like you could c- cut that scene down a little bit, make it a little more fluid. Um, and that would probably make it all the more impactful, right? I think one of the things that this, you know, it's a, it's worth recognizing, Kurosawa's films aren't exactly short films. Um, Seven Samurai is over three hours long. Uh, I think Redbeard is close to three hours long, yeah. right? So he takes his time with movies. Not all of them. Some of them are, are much shorter, but he takes his time with them, and that can often work. But I think this is a film that, honestly, if you trim 20 minutes out of it, uh, it would probably f- work a lot better. Uh, I think having some of that longer pacing at the beginning gives you the dream feel that you need, but tighten it up a little bit at the end would kind of help to not overstay the welcome. And I guess that's kind of how I feel the film winds up being at the end is like, well, that was that started out strong, uh, but it kind of just weared me down. Uh, and that's kind of my take both times I've watched it now is that it could have just got a little faster and taken out a little bit more of the overt messaging on the tail end of it. And you would have had, a, I think, a much stronger, more powerful impact as a film. Yeah, it's hard for me to argue those points. I mean, I, I as much as I like Kurosawa, uh, he definitely does misstep uh, at, at certain points in his career, and I, I think this is one of them, especially the, the second half of the film. And there's a lot to admire here, and, and there's a lot I really do enjoy about this film. Uh, again, just the use of color. Yeah, we are kind of crapping on it, even though I don't think either of us really dislikes it, per yeah, se. Yeah, no, I, I love Neither one of us finds it perfectly... It's just like as you think of this as like the this I I think Kurosawa made one maybe two movies after this, but this feels like it was the last movie of his he made that had some real fanfare to it, and it just seems like oh that's not the one I want you to end on you know you're one of the masters I wish I wish you ended on Ron you know or something yeah. like that, and, and I think that's part of the reason why I struggle with his later films is that they just they they just are not up to the level of his earlier work. And, and again, I understand, you know, Kurosawa was making this, I think he was 80 years old when he made this, or I, he's quite old. And yeah, I think at least when it, when it got to Cannes, I think he was 80 years old when it went to Cannes. Okay. And, and you really have to take that into account. I think, I mean, I'm not trying to make excuses for it, but I, you know, Clint Eastwood aside, when you're when you're pushing eighty and you're directing a feature film, uh, it's probably a pretty exhausting experience, and and it's just not necessarily going to have the energy of of a film you made when you're forty or thirty, right? And and maybe that he he is not interested in making that kind of film anymore anyway, and you really get that sense here. But uh, it it does you know, become quite laborious. And I, I would agree with you, 20 to th- even 30 minutes, if this was like a 90-minute film, I think that probably would have been a perfect runtime. And you really could have made a much more impactful experience, I think, uh, especially if you just remove the, the Mount Fujin Red part, which is still, yeah, it's still just painful to watch that part. It just does not hold up next to the rest of the film. But it's interesting to make the comparison you made with the the procession in the beginning and the one at the end. And they're both kind of the opposite of what you expect in many ways because the foxes, I mean, that's a wedding, right? But it almost seems more like a funeral 
whereas the funeral at the end almost seems mm-hmm. more like a wedding. So it's it's an interesting contrast, and it's nice to kind of see that come full circle. Um, I, one question that occurred what, to me. And, I'm just curious, Matt, in terms of, oh, go ahead, oh, sorry. No, no, that's fine. I'll, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, in terms of just the performances, I mean, we talked about Scorsese a little bit. Uh, I, I just was curious to get your thoughts on, the, there's three different actors that play Kurosawa in different iterations here, right? So yeah. in the very, very beginning, uh, he is the, um, the, young, uh, the young boy, it's Mitsunoro Asaki, who plays him. Uh, and i just curious, you know, like what your thought was of how he was portrayed as a kid versus how he is as an adult when he's Akira, uh, played by Akira Tarayo. Uh, I, I found it interesting because it strikes me that I could pick up right away that this was supposed to be the same person, even though there's nothing ever linking it. I, was, I, was, I can't quite put on my finger how it is that I was able to, to kind of pick up on the fact that, yes, this is the same person in all these different uh, dreams uh, as opposed to entirely, you know, just disconnected stories. Uh, I don't know if you have a thought about that. Well, I think part of the reason you maybe felt that way or, or thought that way was just the fact that they're kind of shown in chronological order earlier in the film, right? So the younger child, he's a bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that kind of sends that message. Um, so there is kind of a linearity that's sort of, even though it is, dreams and dreams aren't always linear you're there's kind of you're right there is a linearity that does come just by some of of the sequencing of things here yeah yeah and it becomes less important later on because you know the kurosawa surrogate is basically an adult throughout most of the film right so you can kind of reorder those the way you want um well just one question that occurred to me and just kind of a closing question i guess is you know why why do legendary directors you know tend to struggle later in their career now that can be kind of an open-ended definition of struggle you could say you know have a hard time finding funding you could say uh just have a decline in filmmaking quality and and, and again I, I don't want people to think that i think kurosawa's later films are terrible which i don't think they are they're just very very different and they seem like an entirely different director, right? Uh, and it's it's really interesting that a director can shift so radically, you know, stylistically uh, at different points in their career. And, you know, is that a sign of struggling or is that uh, a sign of just getting old or is that uh, a sign that they're just interested in exploring new techniques or new themes. You know, Martin Scorsese, of course, is in this film, and he he struggles to find. Film. He's currently seventy eight, and he's still making movies. Well, he's yeah. still making movies, yeah, but but he has a hard time getting them made. You know, he, he's had a hard time with funding in the with his past few films, and and. Ultimately, that's why he's ended up turning to Netflix, I think. It seems like the budgets for his films are pretty much off the chart. But even someone like Scorsese has a hard time getting something made. And that happened to Kurosawa here, too. You know, later in his life, he really needed the friendship of someone like Spielberg or, or Coppola or George Lucas and you know, uh, to, to get his films made. 
because he just was not a draw in Japan anymore. Um, his films just would not make money like, like his, his samurai films did back in the day. And it's kind of sad that that is what can happen to these great legends of, of cinema, right? You know, times change, uh, uh, people's interests in terms of what they look for in entertainment, uh, uh, that changes as well. And you feel like some of these legends just kind of get swept under the rug uh, to a degree. It's it's kind of a sad thing, but uh, you know I admire the fact that Kurosawa kept making films well into his his elderly years, and Scorsese seems to be doing the same thing. Uh, it's admirable they they keep going at it, but it, I have to admit it just kind of makes me sad that they seem to to struggle, you know, after all the accomplishments they they made throughout their life and all the the contributions they made to cinema. Uh so just any any thoughts on that in general? I have a couple. Uh one is I think part of it is just the fact that people do change, interests change, and if you come into a um a director at a certain age in his career where his sync he syncs up with you, uh, but you're coming to having known him later, like you're not aging with him. So, like if you had become a Kurosawa fan back in the fifties and aged with him, perhaps his films in his later career wouldn't seem so disconnected from what you saw earlier because you'd have just pr- progressed along the same uh, timeline in your own life, right? Whereas you and I, of course, are significantly younger than Kurosawa, so we're catching up with you know several decades of work in the span of a year, two years, three years, right? And to see someone's evolved so quickly, you go like, hey, the stuff that I really like was that early stuff, that that's what I really like there, and the stuff that came later, eh, that's not as interesting to me, right? So I think sometimes we are just collapsing so much of their career and their life's work into such a, time, a short time frame that it, sometimes I think that's where the disconnect comes to you as an audience and why some of their older work, their, their uh, late work is going to seem not as successful, not as good, not as interesting. Uh, the other thing is I think that for being a director, making a movie, it's an extremely difficult job. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a young man's job. And I think that as you get older, you just kind of make adjustments to how you work because you can't approach it with the same kind of reckless zeal you did in your 20s or 30s, even your 40s, right? And I think that that will reflect itself on some level in the filmmaking. And so you kind of get something that seems a little more languid or you just kind of get a little more to the point versus before when you you took time to figure out how to be more nuanced or more subtle uh, you just don't have the patience for it anymore when you're older. Uh, you think about all the old people you might know that are just, hey, this is what I think. I don't give a crap anymore, right? <laughs> uh, so I think I think sometimes directors have that same growth uh, as a person, and they just go under, undergo those changes. And so that, that comes through in the, how they would approach telling a story just like it does in a, a typical conversation a person has. Well, we can talk about uh, Criterion's release here. So, uh, yeah, I, I used to own the old uh, Warner DVD that came out, I think it was like in the early 2000s. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Criterion came out with their version um, 
when, when did they release it here? It was a couple years ago, a few years 2016, ago. Twenty sixteen, I think. So four years ago, okay. And it's a, a new four K um, restoration that was supervised by the cinematographer uh, Shoji Ueda, and it looks great. You know, I, the the color timing. I, I do question some of the color timing. There seems to be a real teal push to it. Uh, in in some portions, and I don't know if that's accurate to the original film prints. I don't remember that really being the case on the the Warner DVD, but I mean it's not like overly distracting. It, that seems to be a, a theme with a lot of new transfers and restorations. They like to push the teal tinting for some reason. I don't know why. Um, you know, like James Cameron got involved here or something. I, it, it's weird. But uh, other than that, it really looks looks great, and I, I haven't had a chance to dive in the extras yet unfortunately I, I do have the blu-ray but um i need to take the time to do that so it has an audio commentary with stephen prince i, I love his commentaries typically uh so i, I am kind of anxious to listen to this one uh there's a, a 150 minute documentary on the film a couple new interviews uh and another kurosawa documentary with interviews with Bertolucci and Scorsese and Miyazaki. So really a, a great special edition from Criterion. And I, I love the cover, too, with the uh, the Kurosawa storyboard, basically, the, the painting of the, the scene with the rainbow. It's very, um, very striking. So did you get a chance to get into the extras at all, Nate? Yeah, so I have the Blu-ray as well, uh, and like you said, the presentation of it is pretty fantastic. It looks good. It sounds good. Uh, I obviously don't know the how this could compare to the theatrical expi- ex- uh, exhibition of it back in 1990, but it just is a feast behold with your eyes uh, as you're watching it uh, on a nice HD TV. Uh, I, I've sampled some of the documentary, uh, the Making of Dreams documentary. It's very good. It's obviously very involved, and it's got a lot of on-set stuff, which I think is always your most interesting documentary uh, material for a filmmaking documentary. Uh, the Kurosawa's Way documentary about just Akira Kurosawa is very good. It has a lot of interviews. You mentioned you know, Bertolucci, Scorsese. It has Inyaritu uh, as well, and it has um, uh, Julie Tamer. Uh, who uh, uh, was evidently, I didn't realize this, a big admirer of Kurosawa's. Uh, so it was really cool to see just, I think we often don't realize just how much Kurosawa has influenced many, many different voices of cinema, yeah. not just in the U.S., but also throughout the world. And to hear other directors from other parts of the world talk about how much he influenced them really is kind of just a neat thing to see uh, in this in that particular documentary. Uh, the Stephen Prince uh, auto commentary I liked. Uh, it's not one of his best, uh, but I did like it. I think he just spends a lot of time kind of narrating what's going on a little more than he typically does in these fil- in his commentaries. Uh, so it was a little bit of a disappointment, but he does have some nice insights into it as well. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 an interesting, uh, it's a very impressive release. All right. So what's the verdict here, Nate? Does Dreams belong in the Criterion Collection? I'm going to say no. Uh, Kurosawa obviously has a lot of representation in the collection. And I wouldn't, obviously, I would not begrudge the Criterion Collection doing a complete box set of Kurosawa's work, including this among those, of course. Yeah, they, they better um, do that. Please, someday they will. 
Uh, someday they will do that. That and not one of these essential Kurosawa films. I'd say just do them all. Uh, but nonetheless, I think um, I think as uh, on its own, this is not a particularly great representation, even of late Kurosawa. It's kind of a an offbeat film of his, and one that I don't think really because it was so close to the end. It didn't feel. It doesn't feel like the perfect swan song to him because he did a couple of others after it. It doesn't seem like it marked a new beginning in his career. It just feels like this anomaly in his career. So I would say, no, it doesn't belong there. As much as it pains me to say it, I have to agree with you. Um, again, I'm a big Kurosawa fan, but this one is more of a curiosity. And I'm not trying to belittle it. I still like this film. Like I said, there's there's really a lot to admire here. There's some very striking sequences. And I really do like the hopeful nature of the film. I mean, there's some dark themes here, but ultimately it is a very hopeful, earnest uh, film, really a plea, you know, for, to people to embrace life and and to, you know, be thankful for the, um, the planet that we have and the gifts that we're given uh, during this life. But it's... It's a weaker film from Kurosawa. You know, it's it's something that uh, I think deserves a good Blu-ray release, and I'm glad it's here. But uh, not not something I would, you know, tell people to rush to see if they were you know, getting into Kurosawa. Uh, not necessarily what I would want to be, you know, represented uh, from his catalog in the Criterion Collection. Well, thanks everyone for listening this evening. Our next episode will be our annual Christmas wish list where Nate and I will select one contemporary and one classic film we'd like to see inducted into the Criterion Collection. So that'll be released sometime this coming December. Thanks again for listening and keep collecting. <laughs>